This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 55. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. In America and in sports, we love the term underdog or someone with an outside shot of winning because in all reality, at one point, America was that ultimate underdog. These underdogs are known as Cinderella's in college basketball during March Madness. And our guest this episode, Randy Foy, has fit that role as an outside shot, not because of his ability to hit the outside shot, but because... With his story of family tragedies, the disappearance of his mom, and his dad dying in a motorcycle accident, he truly was an underdog, but now currently as an NBA free agent playing 11 years in the NBA after being drafted 7th overall in 2006 by the Boston Celtics, but was ultimately traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves. He was then selected to the NBA All-Rookie Team after being named the Big East Player of the Year and All-American while playing under Jay Wright at Villanova University. His journey of exploring these stories of people overcoming obstacles to succeed continues as he started his own podcast appropriately called Outside Shot, which allows listeners to hear inspirational stories from all walks of life about overcoming odds. And now, episode 55 with Randy Foy. Randy, thank you for spending time talking about your journey and, of course, your connection with sports. And the full slate of March Madness is about to begin very soon. And, of course, your Villanova Wildcats will be one of the teams to beat this year. How much smack talk goes on in the NBA locker rooms about whose alma mater is going to make a run in the NCAA tournament? Oh, it's, it's so much. It's so much where guys start getting into it you know everyone it's, it's like a it's like a holiday we all celebrate it you know <laughs> and it's like when it when it comes around you know everyone's passing out brackets everyone's like hey you know you want to buy a bracket for 100 bucks for 50 bucks or whatever it is and we just go and if someone team gets upset you know you'll hear about it for the the rest of the year and some team one team is doing well you never don't know who's doing well you never heard about it. So when we were doing that, you heard everything. You heard all about it. So it's a fun time in the NBA locker room because right after practice or right after the game, we figure out exactly what's going on on TNT, whatever channel is on CBS. So it's, it's a fun time, just put it that way. And I can only imagine the amount of smack talk and the side bets going on all over the place, especially when two alma maters are playing against each other. Now, that year... Villanova beats North Carolina on a last-second shot. Did you watch that live, and where were you that day? Yeah, I watched it day? live, so I actually I was on OKC at the time and played uh, Denver. So I was at Denver, and I had got traded from Denver to Oklahoma City, so I still had my place there. So I was at my place or whatever, and I was sitting there, 
and I was getting my leg, my ankle worked on, and we were watching the game. And it's the same play um, that he ran when we were there, and it's just attack. And usually the guy, you attack the guy that who man takes the ball out, and you attack him, and he kind of helps. Once he helps, you turn around and flip it, and I see you, you get that shot. But I was, like, kind of in shock when it happened. <laughs> you know, my wife was sitting there, and she was, like, she was going absolutely crazy. But I was in shock, and I really couldn't move. Did it take you a few minutes to realize what had just happened? Yeah, I think I was like Coach Wright because <laughs> a lot of his tendencies, the, you know, the way he handles, you know, adversity, the way he, you know, handles success, the way he handles a lot of things where you get, um, where you're in the spotlight for, you know, just success and all the good things you do. He handles he handles it really well, and so I think that you know I'm I'm the same way. And when he exactly what he did, I just was like, "Is it does it count? Is the ref going to be like look at it or what?" And it counted, and I just was like, and it hit me the next day. Went to practice, everybody was saying congratulations, like I was on the team. <laughs> but it hit me the next day, and I just was like, I was like, "Man, this is cool, man." Now, so what was it about Coach Jay Wright during the time he was recruiting you that made Villanova feel like home for you? To tell you the truth, I think my relationship with Freddie Hill kind of Freddie Hill set the platform up for you know Coach Wright to come in just he made it easy as possible on Coach Wright you know when Coach Wright came in he was unbelievable the way he recruited the way you know the conversations that we had the, um, his his vision on my life not as a um, a basketball player but as a as a man and that's what I was into early on because I already felt as though I was a man with the situation that I already had gone through you know my life my upbringing, so I already like felt as though like I'm going in with it. His vision and him, you know, just piggybacking off of everything that Coach um, that Coach Hill was talking about. Then that just was like that just was a plus. Well, it's amazing how we're connected, just in terms of Coach Freddie Hill. When I was assistant coach at Fairleigh Dickinson University, he was the assistant there, so I know Coach Hill very well and. He was instrumental in my career early on, so I know exactly what you're describing with Coach Hill. Yeah, he was a great. He was there for me from day one, like from seven. Like Coach Hill, believe it or not, Coach Hill was there for me since I was in basically in the seventh grade. Like he was at big time games when I was in the seventh grade, recruiting me for C, to go to Seton Hall, and then I was going to go to Seton Hall. But then Tommy Emmerich, he leaves and goes to Michigan. He doesn't take any of his um, his assistants. Well, I don't know if he he didn't take majority of them. Just put it that way. And that's when I got the call and said, "Hey, you know, I don't know what I'm doing now, but you know, I think I'm gonna have a job somewhere, but I don't know where yet. Just don't commit to anywhere." And I was like, "Well, you know, <laughs> I want to commit before my senior year starts. So, you know, just basically figure it out." So I he talked to me for the the whole first week, but then he didn't talk to me the second week. And then the second week, towards the end of the second week, when I was going to call him, he called me back and was like, hey, I think I'm going to get the top assistant job at Villanova. And when he said that, I was like, really? And I was like, um, Villanova is, and he was like, Big East. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, the guy, Kerry Kittles, um, go there. The guy that wears one high sock and one low sock. And he was like, and then he, yeah, then he said to me, he was like, yeah, 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 I think I'm going to get the job. Let me, he was like, let's talk in two days. It was, he's like, I think he was getting it done over the weekend. He was like, let's talk on Monday. 
So we talked on Monday, and he got the job, and he was like, before, he was like, I don't want you to, to make any decisions yet. I want you to really think about this because this is your life going into, you know, the next stage of your, your basketball career. So he was like, let's really, you know, don't decide on anything because of me. Let's really think about it. Let's see exactly who they have, things like that, because he's like, I know you want to come in right away and play and start right away. And we sat down and we, we looked at who was on the team. We looked at who was coming in or who who they were recruiting. And, you know, Coach Wright came and, you know, convinced me uh, that, you know, he didn't say I would start or anything, but he just came and convinced me and said, this is a spot for you. From your personality, you know, the way you the way you play, the way you attack, you know, everything they say to get recruits. Yeah. <laughs> and I just was like, I agree with him, though, but – I knew I knew Coach Wright. Coach Wright is he's real, like he's real. Like there's nothing that you look at him and be like, oh, that's BS. Like everything is real because he practices what he's what he preaches. So I looked at it and then I remember going to Villanova for my visit and I said, hey, I think this school is for me. And so my AAU coach was with us and he was like, don't commit yet. You know, take your visit to Florida and take your visit to Cincinnati. So Bob Huggins was at Cincinnati. Billy Donovan was at um, Florida. He was like, take your visits there. I was like, nah, I don't think I want to go that far and leave my grandma's. And then the next day I called Freddie Hill and I said, I'm going to come to Villanova. And then they said, great. And then I remember it's a place called Fornos in um, East Newark. We went there. And like a week later, I signed my letter of intent. I had a press conference and got ready for my senior year. Now, would you have followed Coach Hill to other schools? I wouldn't have followed him to, like, there's no disrespect at all, but I wouldn't have followed him to, like, a, let's say, a Monmouth in this area. Like, let's say if he got, like, a head coaching job, like, at Monmouth, or even, like, an FDU, I wouldn't have followed him. Like, it had to be, like... It had to be like in a big time conference. Yeah, no, I understand that, but it's a, it's okay if you're throwing shots at FDU. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not throwing shots. <laughs> I'm, joking. I'm just saying, like it, it would have to be, it would have to be in a, a conference, let's say Big Ten, ACC, Big East, something like that, because I felt as though, you know, I was the best player in New Jersey, so it's like I got to go somewhere where, when I'm walking on campus. It's like we got a chance to win a national championship. Of course, yes. You are obviously much better than a Fairleigh Dickinson. I, I get that 100%. Freddie Hill, though, is a master recruiter. So who knows? He might have convinced you <laughs> to go somewhere uh, else. He, yeah, but he knew. He already knew. Because, <laughs> but, like, he knew. And I, and I knew, you know, I really could. I, I knew conferences. I didn't really look at notice schools, but I knew conferences. So if he'd have been like, oh, you know, it's to you. And I would have looked at that conference, and I'd be like, "Yeah, you gotta win. You know, you gotta be, you gotta win the whole thing. You gotta win your conference championship just to make the tournament." I don't know. That's right. Hey, I love you, Freddie. You're a great recruiter, but yeah. I don't know about that one, right? Yeah, but he knew because he had all of us. In all seriousness, he was a master recruiter for the state of New Jersey. Yeah. It was amazing. This is because it's it's, it's not like uh, he's not saying anything different. I just think what he's saying, it resonates as far as being real. I think a lot of times when you're a kid, you know, dealing with AAU and dealing with guys that are trying to attach themselves to you from an early age, one thing as a basketball player you recognize when someone is basically, you know, being a hypocrite or just being someone that's around you just to be around you for your name. You recognize that. 
And he he don't come across like that. There's a lot of other people to recruit you. There's a lot of other people to call your house when you're being recruited. There's a lot of other people to do some sneaky things behind you, behind you know your back, breaking rules when they're not supposed to do. He never did that. Only thing he did was just he just was honest. You know, you got if you come to Villanova, you're gonna have to work hard. It's, it's a school, you know, and we play by the rules here. He's just honest about everything. So I think, and you know that he cares because he, he comes to mean it like things that don't mean anything, like games where he know you're going to have a big game. He comes to that game. Games he know you're going to play against someone talented, he's going to come to that game. He's going to come to stuff that you're not even – he'll come to something where you're doing a presentation in school for your English class. He'll come to something like that. So just things like that mean mean a lot to a young kid. Very impactful for sure. So now let's – go back before that let's travel back in time to 1993 now i just graduated from clemson and started my dream of coaching college basketball as an assistant with freddie hill at fairly dickinson and while i was also doing some ticket sales with the new jersey nets just trying to make ends meet i'm living in cranford new jersey not too far from newark you're 10 years old what was life like for you at that point uh life like i was fifth grade I know my teacher. My teacher was Mr. Jamenta, fifth grade teacher, really funny dude. Always talked about the Cayman Islands. Um, it was at that time. It was that probably was like. Let me see. If I could just remember, my fourth and fifth, fourth, fifth, and sixth was probably like some of the roughest times of my life. Actually, understanding exactly, not understanding it to his full potential, but understanding what probably happened to my mom's. And then, you know, recognizing, you know, my dad died in a motorcycle crash, uh, fleeing from the police. Um, and then just, you know, just dealing with going through all of that different, different stuff is turning into a man and, you know, not just a young man. And just to be honest with you, that was, um, that was a tough, that was a tough period in my life right there. So how did basketball become important in your life at that time? At that time, I don't think it just was basketball. I think it was all sports. You know, I love baseball. I think to this day, I always, you know, I have these conversations with my friends. I think baseball was my best sport because the era that we lived in, it was all Hispanics. So it was like Hispanics and blacks. And all of my friends were either, you know, some black kids or some Spanish kids. So we basically helped them understand football and they helped us understand baseball. So I went to go, so they were all a couple years older than me. So they were playing 11 and 12 and they were, they were 12 and I was 10 and I made the, you can have one 10 year old on your team. And I remember playing and I remember doing work that year when I played and then they, they all left. And they were like eighth grade, and I just was going to the six. And I remember I played on the, I was 11, and I played, and it just was like, I was so good, you know, because I was much bigger than everyone. I threw so hard. I was, um, I can hit, I can run, I can do a little bit of everything. And I just loved the sport. So then what happened to baseball then? It just stopped. I'm going to be honest with you, when, when they told me, they said, hey, man, um, you know, when you get, I used to just, I'm going to be honest with you, 
I hated the fact that we had to wear our pants so tight. <laughs> <laughs> I hate like I was I hated the issue that we had to wear our pants that way. And why was that? I don't know. I think we were. I think somebody made fun of me. I think we were in, like doing a parade, and somebody said something like just making fun of like it wasn't even someone that was on the team. He was making fun of us, but we did the parade or whatever. And he just was like, he just was, this guy just was going on everybody. He just was like, hey, man, like, I don't even remember what he was saying, but I just remember, I just didn't like it. And I remember, I said to myself, as soon as I finished, because I was playing for the North Bears, I was like, as soon as I finish playing for these guys when I'm 12, because I go, you go 13, I was like, I'm playing, I was like, I'm going to, I'm just playing strictly football and basketball. And as soon as I was done, that summer, I started playing basketball. And then Sandy Pioni, he basically, um, him and Larry left, discovered me. They came to a gym that I was at in my, my neighborhood in North, and they watched me play, and they asked um, some people that were there. They was like, man, how old is that um, How old is that kid? And he's like, he's 12. And he's like, how old are those kids? They was like, I think they're like 15. And they asked me to come down to to play in this game. Like two days later, and we went down and played in the game, and I think I had like, 25 and something crazy just going to the basket and I was I was doing it on guys that was much older than me and so Sandy just said Sandy Pioni said hey do you want to play for 16 and under when I was 12 and I said sure <laughs> <laughs> I've been a road runner ever since then well and obviously during that time the mid-90s that's when the Fab Five is really coming to the scene with the baggy clothes so I can understand why you might have been wanting to move away from the tight-fitting pants and baseball and then shift over to basketball so who were some of the basketball players that you idolized growing up then? Obviously Mike um, AI AI was um, huge and from just being an inner city kid AI was huge. Just the way he, just his swag, the way he carried himself, everyone loved him. Um, I loved watching uh, a lot of people when I used to play. Like, oh man, you play like uh, you play like Joe Dumars, and I used to always like try to find highlights on him. And I'm glad when they came out with the Bad Boys, um, Thirty for Thirty, you got a chance to see him play. But yeah, he was like that was like my main guy to watch though. When I was younger, it was Allen Iverson. Well, I saw him firsthand when I was a coach at Maryland Eastern Shore. We played Georgetown, and it was immediate that there was nobody even close to his talent level. It was absolutely amazing. So I can understand why you obviously gravitated towards Allen Iverson. Yeah, the love was from Georgetown. You know, just the way they wore the gray and blue, that's, that's where the love started from Georgetown. And I used to like I used to like Ed Coda a lot and Shamar Williams from North Carolina. I used to like William Avery, those guys. So I used to, I love William Avery game. And he played for Duke. William Avery played for Duke. Oh yes, no doubt about it. Hard nosed guys and I'm trying to get Shaman Williams on the podcast as well. So <laughs> Yeah, but if you get him on the podcast, man, just tell him I'm a big fan. Yeah, I definitely will. Now, what about draft night two thousand and six? Now, did it matter to you where you went? You just wanted to be in the NBA? Nah, it don't even matter, to tell you the truth. You just want to be, when you when you sit in there, you sit in there. And I can remember, I thought I was going to go to Atlanta at number five, but they took Sheldon Williams. Then I can remember, um, 
number six come in. I thought I was going to Minnesota. They took him, so I didn't think I was going to number 13 after that. Or oh, I thought I was going to go number nine or something. And so after that, they just was like, with the seven picks, the Minnesota Timberwolves select. And it just seemed like he said it in slow motion. He was like, Randy Ford. And I just got up, you know, hugged my grandmoms, um, hugged all my family and friends. And from there, man, Brandon Roy, we sat in the back. We had a nice conversation. And we didn't know where we were going. And then, like, 20 minutes later, they was like, okay, you can go to Portland now, and you can go to Minnesota. And then we got up, and we went to our respective um, media outlets and just started doing the media. So, you know, Minnesota, we started doing it for New York. And then after that, the next morning, I had a flight to Minneapolis at 6, did the press conference, like, at 12, and was on a flight that night right back here, celebrated with my family, and then I got to work. I got back to work, started working out, got ready for the um, summer league. That had to be a whirlwind. I, I can't even imagine. And then for the summer league, you ended up being MVP, right? Yeah, I won the MVP at summer league. I had, it was only back then. It's different now. Back then, it was only five games. So you played five games, and that was it. And I think I, the first game, I had like 17. And then I can remember having, you know, like a 28, 25. And it just was like college to me. I was doing whatever I wanted to. Now, when did it change in terms of that feeling that you didn't feel like you were in college, that you were like, uh-oh, this is the NBA? Yeah, it, it never really changed because I think I think only time it changes when you go into the – is when you're not ready physically. I think when you just like, oh, but I was already ready, ready physically. Just the mental part of just running the team, I wasn't there yet. But I think, you know, just the conversations on the plane and – you know, KG just, you know, talking to me like this is how you got to do things. And I just remember him talking to me. And I just remember as he was talking to me and doing certain things, I just started taking off. Like I took off and I got rookie of the month and I was on my way. And then they fired um, Dwayne Casey. And then Randy Whitman, starts, he started Troy Hudson. And he put me on the bench. And then I was coming in just like as a spark. And then after that, they just couldn't hold me back no more. And I just started going absolutely bananas, you know, scoring and doing everything. I think I finished like second or third in rookie of the year voting, first team all rookie, and just was on my way. And then that summer, I cracked my kneecap, and then it just was like, took five steps forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> took five steps forward, and then I took, you know, seven steps backwards. So that's the that's what kind of killed me, you know, cracking my kneecap. And do you feel that that was a pivotal moment in your career that Ever since that moment, the nagging injuries have been yeah, part of your career. It just this is stuck with me all the way through. It's like some days are better than the other one, just from the scar tissue that built up around it. Of course. Now, something else I want you to share, and I'm embarrassed to say it's I've never even heard of this medical condition, this situs inversus. So, can you oh, yeah. share exactly? when you found out about this and exactly what it is. Yeah, I had pneumonia when I was um, eight years old. I was that kid that when um, when you go outside and your grandmother said, hey, um, make sure you don't take your jacket off. It's pretty cold today. I was that kid. As soon as I got there, I took my jacket off. <laughs> and then I put my jacket on, went home. And I could just remember, you know, being sick, going to the hospital, struggling to breathe with, like, bronchitis. And I, and they said, oh, yeah, I think you have, like, the, a case of flu. And then they was like, oh, you have pneumonia, like that. And I'm going to start doing these um, these tests because the lady, she 
was trying to check for my heartbeat and she couldn't find it. Wherever she was, she was like, well, his heart is not beating here. So, and then another doctor came in he said the same thing that another nurse came in. And after that, they was like, we want to do a chest x-ray or scan. And then, and then I was like, um, all right, this is going on here. My grandmother was freaked out. I kind of, uh, I kind of like let them do the chest x-rays and all the scans and the MRI stuff. And then they came back and I just remember talking about grandma and she was like, Hey, you know, you, your heart's on the other side and you know, it's, everything's the same. It's just a mirror image. You know, it's pretty normal. I think like 4 million people have it in the U S out of 336 million or something like that. But back then it probably was like out of 296 million. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, all right, I really ain't never think nothing of it because it never bothered me. But when I got to the NBA, I started meeting people and I started hearing about the conditions that some of these kids have where kids can't even breathe from it or kids, you know, have these crazy problems. And I remember me having bronchitis and I was like, oh, man, that's probably why I had, why I had bronchitis because of my situs and versus. And just thinking about all these different things that you meet these kids, they can't even uh, they can't even breathe. So it's just like I am extremely blessed because some people can't even walk, you know, 20 steps without having to sit down and take, you know, asthma pump or be on some type of oxygen. So it's just amazing how blessed I am. Did any of the NBA teams ever have any concern <laughs> about this? When I, so when I first, when I first, um, so when I went to, I think our, um, I think our, yeah, our combine was at Disney. So when I went to the combine, I already knew I was going to be a lottery pick. So I, I didn't do like the the major stuff. Like I didn't do the vertical. I don't think I did the vertical. Yeah, I think I did the vertical and like the shuttle run and something else. And that was all that I did. But you still got to get checked. You know, you got to get blood. You got to have to give urine. And they have to give you a, um, a stress test. So I did the stress test. And as soon as you get on, the lady started hooking me up and she started checking me for um sure it's something around your throat where they put the the gel and it's it's like the ultrasound where they can see something there and she couldn't see it and she was like something's wrong that she put it on my back and then on my side she told me lay on my side and she still couldn't see it and then she told the other doctor but i knew what was going on (laughs) i was like shit I was like, this is going to mess up my stock. I was like, my <laughs> stock is going to drop if I tell her something's wrong with my heart. And then I just was like, I didn't say anything. And I just was like, oh, you know. And then the doctor came in there and then another doctor. So before I got out of hand, I told the doctor, I said, uh, I have situs and versus. And they was like, oh, we were waiting for you. We knew it was one of you. <laughs> like <that. laughs> and I was like, I have situs and versus. And he was like, oh, we were waiting for you. We knew it was one of you. And then after that, I just sat down and then like everyone, like it was some nurses that was like there, it was like their first or second year being a nurse. And then they, they read about it and they studied about it, but they never saw, you know, in person. And then there was just some nurses, it was some interns there. So everybody got a chance to see it. So I went, to, I went, I was basically like an alien. Here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A guinea pig, right? <laughs> but yeah, I wasn't saying anything because I was like, man, this is going to mess up my stock. They found out something's wrong with my heart. But then they just told me it's completely normal. And you get the green light, the check mark, and you're good to go, right? Yeah, I got the green light. I think I left that night after that. Do any of your three daughters have this? Nope. That was the first thing we checked for. 
besides when they, you know, when they're first born, you know, you're checking for fingers and, and toes and making sure everything like that is fine. But that was the first thing that I had um, that we checked for. And we were like, um, you know, my husband and wife was like, my husband had sinus versus everything okay? And he was like, sure, everything's great. Did they know what causes this? There's something on BBC um, in the womb for nine months. So at 14 weeks, everything starts swirling, basically, you know, clockwise. But with me, everything starts swir- um, swirling counterclockwise. That's amazing. Yeah, it's on BBC. It's on Netflix. You go. It's called. Um, it's called Nine Months, the birth of nine months, something like that. But it's a BBC thing, and it's like I think I'm 14 weeks. So everyone has problems. Like some a girl, she has no hair on her body. Then another lady has like no teeth. Then it's like another kid who has like an active gene in like the UK that happens like at eight weeks where she's bigger than normal. And if it doesn't stop, they can kill her. It's just, it's cool if you see it. Yes, I definitely will have to check that out. I'm fascinated by it. Like I said, I'm embarrassed that I never heard of it, but it's, it's absolutely amazing. Now, as a free agent, are you focusing on trying to continue your career or is retirement becoming something that yeah, you're thinking no, about? no retirement yet. I think I'm a, like I said, I'm a, you know, I always stay in shape. Um, I'm helping like the, the local high school team here as I'm coaching my, my daughters, but you know, just still playing every day, still lifting, you know, just being a pro that I always have been for me is more of just the right situation because I, you know, I've been in losing situations that, that, that gets old. Just put it that way. That gets old. And I just wanted to be in the, you know, I had a couple of situations this year that I could have went into just for, from my resume, what I have done in the league. And, you know, being known as a shooter, being known, you know, as a professional, a good, great locker room guy, I could have easily, you know, took, you know, a couple of opportunities was there, but it was, there were bad situations. And when me and Kyle talked, my teammate Kyle Lowry, you know, we talked a couple of years ago, and he was like, man, you can't keep choosing these bad situations. Like, I know, <laughs> man, I know. And, but... It's just like, I just didn't want to do it, you know, because money, money's not the issue. You know, I did, you know, the right thing with my money. So when that's not the issue, you can kind of pick and choose where you want to go. And at this at this point in my life, I just I just didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to go, you know, West Coast for a one-year deal. Like now, if they would have said multiple-year deal and it's all guaranteed, then that's something you got to look into. But if someone's just saying one year and then they telling you that they're not completely sold on the coach <laughs> and you're like, huh? And like, yeah. I'm we're not completely sold on him. And you're thinking to yourself like, well, I'm coming here because of him. And then at the end of the day, he gets fired. It's just like, wow. So when free agency comes back around, the right opportunity comes along. Like I look at Jared Jack, he did it last year and he set out the whole year and the right situation came along with the Knicks this year. He played pretty well. And he took it. He took advantage of the opportunity. So when this free agency is up, they know what he can do. So I feel as though, you know, if I get that chance where this year, you know, I'm out this year, but next year, you know, I'm back on, then I'm going to be ready. Because, you know, as an athlete, you never stop working out. I don't care what people say. Like, you never stop. You know, you may take a week here or a week there or two weeks there, but you never completely, if if you're taking off, you're doing something you're lifting, you're doing some type of yoga, you're taking care of your body, you're doing something to make sure you're right. 
So what do you think will be the key for you when you do recognize that it's time to retire? For, for one, I, I know a lot of people say the phone start ringing, but for me, when I recognize that it's time to retire, it's, you know, basically I can tell from my body. Like you can tell when, like I could tell that from what, how I used to be, I can remember I used to never stretch. I used to just go out there and dunk the ball. Now it takes me, I got to play like, you know, a full game and a half. I got to play one game, a pickup, then I got to play a half a game pickup before I'm able to dunk the ball. So <laughs> I get it, you know, yes. father time is no joke. So that's right. I know, I, I don't know, trust me. Like I'm gonna always be active on the court, but I'm gonna know it's gonna be a time where I ain't gonna be able to play full court no more. Well, yeah, I joke with my wife because I I still try to play at times and I I still run uh, quite a bit. But I yeah, like stuff like that you can always do. Like you can run, you can do some cool things. Yeah, I joke with my wife though. Our, our joke is that when I go for a run, it takes me almost as long stretching as the run does <laughs> because yeah. I you know I'm 46 and I'm pulling hamstrings or a calf or something. It's always seems like it's always something. It's always something. It's always something from fatigue. That's right. So now let's turn to your podcast called Outside Shot. Why did you decide to start a podcast? Um, my my situation is, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same, but it's it's close. Like you know, during the, um, the presidential um, campaign a year and a half ago, this was you know going through stuff. You know, just hearing some of the things that um, you know our president um, now has been saying. Just hearing the things that, you know, it was going on while he was running for um, president, I just was like, wow, this is amazing that, um, you know, someone is about to be in this position that is getting away with so many different things. And that was just me, you know, thinking to myself. And then I was talking, I started talking to my partner who helped me do the podcast, um, Noah Scheinman. And, you know, we felt the same way. And I was like, wow, you know, it's a, you know I'm a young African um, American successful male, and here's a, a, a Jewish guy about 11 years older than me, and we have mutual feelings when it comes to you know, what's going on in the world today. And it just all, you know, stemmed from a conversation that me and him had on on the telephone. And he was like, "Hey, what do you want to do?" And at that time, I was with the Brooklyn Nets, and we was going back and forth. We were talking about you know web series on the internet. We were talking about trying to start a talk show together, you know, something like a Mike and Mike in the morning with Noah and Randy or Randy and Noah. And he was like, what do you think about, you know, doing a podcast? And I was like, you know, I know, you know, JJ Reddick, I know JJ does it. Um, I'm familiar with me and him. You know, we have good conversations when we see each other because we have the same draft, you know, but I was like, how much, what is the time like time consuming and I have to be, you know, certain places because, you know, my NBA basketball comes before anything. And he was like, no, you can just record it, edit it, and then go about our business. And that's how me and him basically got started on our podcast outside Shower Randy Floyd, just from a basic conversation about what's going on in the world today. That's how it all started. How did you come up with the name then, Outside Shot? Because I just looked at my past. I looked at my past, and from day one, I felt as though I was an outside shot. With everything that happened, with my upbringing, my mom's being deceased, dad being deceased. There's no way that a kid from North New Jersey, and if you know New, if you know New Jersey, you know North New Jersey, is supposed to be able to get this far in life and be this successful in life on all levels, all stages. It's been really successful, and we just thought about it. There's so many different names that we elaborated on for weeks, but 
was just, when I thought about it, when I put it into, when we put it on paper, I was like, yeah, that looks right. Because for one, I'm known for shooting threes and, you know, in, in college and in the pros. And for two, I was an outside shot because easily how many friends I have lost to gang violence, to, you know, being incarcerated. I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. And this is something that I carry with me every day. And this is something that I know that, you know, I was, I was picked and I was chosen and, and I'm blessed and I thank God for it every single day for, you know, laying the pavement and laying the foundation of my life for me to take all the right steps because there are situations that I have seen and there's people that have been around that were really bad people and things happened to other guys that didn't happen to me where, like I always say, some people say, hey, don't go around this area today, go somewhere else. And I chose to play basketball and other guys did and their lives got cut, cut short because of it. Growing up then, was there a certain motivation that you saw some other quote-unquote outside shot people making it and that gave you motivation? Yeah, it was, it was mostly I didn't see it. <laughs> I was like, I said to myself, the foundation, what what makes a, a human being successful? And I remember I used to always have these conversations uh, with some of my elementary school, my high school teachers, guiding counselors, coaches, and what makes a young woman or a young man successful. And we always had these conversations, and somehow, some way, it always got back to the foundation around, you know, the kid, the foundation. And so that's kind of where it started. That's why I started my foundation. Um, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm trying to set up platforms for these kids to be successful in life. I'm trying to show them different things, I'm trying to show them things that they probably would never see in 200 years if they were alive. But I'm trying to give them that experience through everything that I'm experiencing. And that's what the outside, that's basically what the outside shot is, just like the foundation, because the, the outside shot is someone who wouldn't be able to step on this platform that I'm providing to tell their story. But with me being able to do research and, you know, look into people who don't even know that I'm paying attention to them and say, hey, would you mind, you know, being on the outside shot with Randy Ford? And these people are like, huh? And I'm just like, yeah, I think your story is a, <laughs> I'm like, I think your story is amazing. I think you're brave. I think you're so courageous. And I want you to be able to tell your story where people, you know, thousands of people are able to hear your story. And I love that because I'm wanting to focus on how sports is intersecting into those type of situations, just like your story, how sports provided you with this platform. And I've always questioned, and it sounds like you have too, this question of why do some people make it and so many others don't? What is it? Is it in their DNA? Is it this nature versus nurture, you know, with their environment or this foundation? So what have you seen as far as, is there a common theme or common traits of these underdogs that you've interviewed and had their story shared that make them overcome these obstacles? And to be honest with you, I think the common thing of it all is that no one believed in them. When I think about Mayor Karula, you know, how can a Muslim mayor um, be mayor in, in a, a city that's basically 13 miles from where the World Trade Center fell? There's no way. But for him to be able to to make it and for him to be able to 
understand exactly what he needed to do as far as dealing with people, I think that story was amazing. And it just was throughout all of the people who I interviewed from Jeremy Lin to Mayor Carulla to Will Sheridan to myself, it was like we never had a chance if we didn't believe. And we believed and we strived to be great. And all of us now, we're, we're doing extremely important and extremely big things in our own worlds. And were you motivated then to prove people wrong that you could do it? Or were you trying to prove the people that did believe in you, prove them right? I think early on, I was trying to prove people wrong. And it seemed like I was always to the speed bump when I was trying to prove someone wrong. But when I, whenever I just thought about myself and I thought about my myself in a, in a way of, you know, you're not supposed to be here, Randy. You're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be dead. You're supposed to be in jail. You know, the eyes were stacked against you. Whenever I thought that way, then it, it felt like it was a ton of bricks that was off my shoulders. And I just was able to focus either if it was in class or if it, if it was on the court. But whenever I felt as though I had to do something to prove someone else wrong, it seemed like I always hit a speed bump. It seemed like I always had some type of adversity. And I would agree with that. If you can just release that, it just changes your whole mindset and outcome. Now, season two of the podcast, is that up and coming? Are you working on that right now? Oh, yeah. We um, send out emails. We send out text messaging. And we have our first big one. Uh, I'm not going to say it yet, but we have our first big one on Wednesday. It's supposed to be a Nor'easter coming our way. So we're trying to basically schedule around that but okay i think that this this one the first one was really it was like an introduction this one is is going to be extremely successful people in this one i'm talking about people who handle multi-billion dollar companies um, they're going to be um, telling their stories and they're going to be retelling us you know what it takes to be exactly what you want to be in life through self-discipline through god and through love so it's going to be cool. And so who's a dream guest for you to be on the podcast? A dream guest for me to just sit down and just have some type of just back and forth with, like you said, we just feel like we're sitting on the um, Yeah, just having a conversation. Yeah, just yeah, just sitting on the couch having a, a normal conversation. I think that, that dream person probably would be um, President Barack Obama. And I just would love to sit down and have that conversation just to be able to talk to him about, you know, not just, you know, his upbringing and, you know, how did he make it, but to be able to sit down and talk to him about dealing with other nations. And I know we probably have to get clearance on some of the things that I'll ask, but you know, I'm, just a, I'm just a guy who's just intrigued by, you know, history. And I think that, you know, he, he's dealt with a lot of powerful people in the world. And I, I would just would love to hear the stories. I agree. And while I might not agree with all of his political views and his stances, that doesn't mean I don't respect what he's been able to do. And you just don't, by luck, become president of the United States. Now, exactly. one of the other things, Randy, that I've mentioned is that I think we're more similar than you even know. And now, Obviously, I never played in the NBA or anything of that nature, but we are connected in another thing that we've had a parent that we didn't know what happened to. 
obviously your story with your mom and that was reported back in 2016 when you finally found out what had happened to her and you know was able to have some closure so to speak and be connected back to your mom well I never knew my biological father he left my mom when I was about two years old and he spent some time in jail up in New York of all places and then I've been told that apparently he died in a drug deal gone wrong, but a body was never found. And so I've always had this feeling of abandonment and have always asked that question, you know, why would he leave? Did he not love me? And so hearing your story, also that you'd lost your dad and then your mom's situation, as I mentioned, and when I listened to your podcast, I admit I got emotional on Two different fronts. Sad that I'm still in this unknown with my dad, but happy for you knowing that you've been able to have this closure, so to speak. And so how have things been different for you since 2016, being able to understand exactly what happened with your mom? Well, as we speak, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm in my office and my mom's my mom's ashes are on a fireplace. And I just think about the day that I found out about it. And I just remember waking up, it was like 4.30 in the morning. And I remember looking out a window and I looked out and it was just so peaceful and nice. And then my wife said to me like, hey, you know, the girls have orientation today. So we got to go. And so I remember just um, texting coach that morning, you know, hey, like I don't feel right. Coach Kenny Atkinson, I don't feel right. And we had workouts that day. And he was like, hey, no problem. You know, you're, you're a vet, you understand your body, you know, if you, I don't care how many days you need, just whatever, just, just do your thing. And I just remember, you know, getting that phone call. That's one thing that sticks out to me, getting that um, phone call from the, um, I think it's the general surgeon in the state of New York. It's just questioning me and asking me. And I just remember my wife saying, what's wrong with you? Because we're in orientation. So we're sitting in classrooms classroom to classroom meeting different teachers for the kids and then we're sitting in the auditorium and I got to walk away twice and take these calls one from my agent and then one from I think it was someone from the lead and then another one from the general um, surgeon of New York State um, assistant then him so I'm just walking back and forth and she, she's like what? just sit down just relax and I'm just like something's going on I don't know what's going on and I'm trying to explain myself but I really can't explain it to a guy who, who I work with with these kids here and he's a basketball coach and he was saying that, you know, he had a stroke and he was trying to explain himself to the team. But he was like, every time he was explaining himself, it was like he was, you know, like the water or the, his saliva. He just was like, he couldn't control it. And he was drinking water and he was like, when he was drinking water, it just was like going down his shirt. Like, and he was like, what's going on? And so I think that you know, just that day, I felt like I had a stroke. <laughs> and just like, it just was something that, you know, I never thought that I would find my mom's. And I was able to find my mom's from a, a story. I think I did it with the New York newspaper and someone just seeing it and trying to connect the dots. Someone cared that much to try and connect the dots. So like I said, I, I feel as though my life is a, is a movie, but this right here, was absolutely like I was walking on cloud nine where I didn't know what was going on. It was like I was in a maze 
on a cloud, just floating. Like I didn't even know. Like I was, it hit me so hard that I needed to relieve, like whatever I was going through at the time, I needed to relieve it. So I just remember working out, and I don't even remember. My in-laws were here, and it just was like I had to get away, and that's the only way I knew, you know, how to relieve stress was by working out. But just getting the news that this might be your mom's, that was like. It was like, whoo, yes. But then again, it was like, all right, do you really want to go down this road and relive all of this? It was so surreal, but I feel as though, you know, everything happens for a reason. The reason why I signed in Brooklyn, the reason why I started the podcast. Like, I started it, I agreed to start the podcast basically three weeks prior to that, and then that happened. So it was, it was everything happens for a reason, and everything plays itself out. So I just was, I just was happy to, you know, have my mom's with me now. You know, I go, I stand by it, I pray, talk to her. But more than anything, I'm just happy to have my mom's in my life, dead or alive. Of course, I, I know that has to be a, a sense of relief from that perspective. Now that you are reconnected with your mom, you know what happened. Did the feelings of abandonment go away, knowing that? She didn't really abandon you, which you might have thought for years that she did. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as the DNA test came back and it was positive that she was uh, Regina Foy and her DNA was matched to mine, like, as soon as that happened and they told me, you know, 1989, exactly when we thought she just had disappeared, when they told me that, I was like, wow. And that was, it definitely went away. Like, I felt as though... There was no, I was like, yeah, she didn't abandon me. Like something happened. It was a tragedy. And, you know, her life was, her life was basically taken. So I just felt as though, I just felt, I felt good. That was like kind of like a ton of bricks off my shoulders also. Just from feeling like, hey man, like, damn, my mom's really, you know, took off on me. I used to always say to myself, I'm just hoping when I get drafted or, if I, you know, if I'm making it to college or whatever, she just don't come out the Woolworths. It's like, hey, mom's back. So with that would be, you know, finding out exactly what happened in 2016 on September 2nd. That was like a million pounds off of my shoulders. And it just was a relief where I felt so much better. I can only imagine. So I also presume that there was no more of this looking over your shoulder, just waiting to your point that one day would she show up? And But now you don't have to worry about that. You know exactly, and you, you can have that closure, right? Yeah, that was a closure, but that was my fear, like me being in the city. And it's like when we walk to the bus, there's always a lot of you know fans out there, and sometimes there's family out there when we walk to the bus. And my fear was always that you know she would be standing there if we were like in the city, Phoenix or you know somewhere in California or Chicago, one of the big cities, and I just was like, that was my fear that that would happen. Yeah, and then obviously, how would you react at that moment, right? Yeah, I already knew my reaction. My reaction would have been bad. So I just think I never wanted that to happen because just me and me being the person that I am, I know how I am. I probably wouldn't even acknowledge it. Yeah, granted, you had some support with your grandmother and your, and your aunt, but you'd really done things mostly just on your own. Yeah, I'll just, just to tell you the truth, to be honest with you, it was more of just, you know, I had a tight circle. And it was like three or four people that really helped me become the man, um, the young man first. And 
And then, you know, my college coach, Jay Wright, he helped mold me into the man that I am today, just with the, mor- the morals and the values of, you know, what it takes to be a man. So that's why, you know, just if she would have been around, if she would have came around at that time, I would have been really upset. Of course. And you had mentioned love and God helped you through a lot of this. When did you come into your faith? Early on. You know, I had a um, teacher by the name of Miss Troublefield. Miss Walker, Miss Walker, then Miss Troublefield. She used to always take us to church, and that's when I, you know, I figured out that was like my sixth grade year. And my grandmother had a lot of things up on the wall, but that's when I just figured out, you know, about prayer. Then she was like, "You want to be saved? You want to? You want to go and, um, you know, hand your life over to the Lord?" We were like, "Sure." So she took like between six and ten of us, and I went, and it just was a feeling that I had that day. I just always said to myself, like, man, this is like, this is amazing. The way I'm feeling right now is like amazing. You know, it was like no one gave me, you know, any money. No one gave me, uh, you know, something materialistic. They just, she just gave me an opportunity to, you know, get closer to God. And that's when I really start um, just flirting with it, going back. And, you know, sometimes I had lashes, but, you know, whenever. I would just sit down. I just, just learned how to pray. And then going to Villanova, it was a Catholic school. They would always pray. Just always pray through good and bad. And that just stuck with me. That stuck with me for forever. And I'm still the same way now. Sometimes I'll just be sitting somewhere and I'll stop. You know, we just was, we just took my kids to get ice cream. Sometimes I'll just stop and I just be like, thank, you know, just say, thank you, God. This is just unbelievable. You know, thank you for blessing me so much. Amen. Just a simple prayer like that. And it just made me feel so much better. You know, when I was going through my injuries, I would always, you know, pray. When I felt as though I was at 100% on the court, and I just would pray. I will walk on the court, walk around the court, just pray. You know, dribble a ball around the court, just like protect me here tonight, Father, things like that. So I just, I just know that I'm, you know, I'm blessed, and I know God has a lot to do with it. So I always thank Him for it. I think it's powerful. I didn't come into my faith until I was about 36 years old. And so I'm a little bit jealous that you were able to find that early on. We all obviously all walk on our different pathway, so to speak. But I agree with you 100% that it's amazing just the power of just a simple prayer. To your point, even in good times, just the prayer of thank you just yeah, feels I think, so I think great. In, in bad times people, you know, seem to, you know, tend to pray more, but I, I think in good times, that's when you have to really sit down and give God thanks because, you know, like this, it could change for you. So I think in good times, that's when you just have to be conscious of it because it's so easy, you know, when you're, when you're having fun and you're out and about to forget about things like that. Without a doubt. And too many times I got caught up thinking it was all me. I was doing all this. It was my ability of why things were happening. And that's not reality. I can promise you that. Yeah, at all. (laughs) Now, speaking of your daughters and what you're talking about coaching, how important is it for you to be involved in their sports activities and just all their activities, knowing obviously that you didn't have parents that were there growing up? Oh, it's extremely, it's extremely important. Like, I felt like, I'm telling you, I think everything happens for a reason. And there's a reason why this has been such an, in my oldest daughter, Paige, this has been such an important year for her, for, you know, sports in general, that I'm happy I'm here. Like, she took some huge strides 
just for me being here. And sometimes, you know, we work out together, but there's other times where we just, you know, talk about, you know, work ethic and what does it take? She's like asking me like that. You're not playing right now. You know, why are you, why you still go work out every day? Or why you still go to the gym and, you know, stay in there for three hours? Why do you still do this? And my answer to her is that, you know, if, if I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse. And I tell her that's how that should be your approach. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And if you want to be an athlete, this is what it takes. It's going to take an unbelievable amount of focus and effort to be the best student you could be. It's going to take even more to be the athlete that you want to be. And what a great example you are, not only with just your words, but as you mentioned, they're seeing your actions as well. And your story is amazing and inspirational. So what words of wisdom, any types of quotes, phrases, mottos, or life advice that has meant a lot to you that you'd like to share? Um, some of the mottos that I look at is um, believe in the impossible. I, I love that because it's definitely because I think impossible is nothing. It's just a word. Everything is possible if you try and you believe in yourself and you work hard. Well said, sir. And Randy, I'm not one that believes in coincidences. And I firmly believe that we were meant to have a conversation and get connected. And I can't thank you enough for spending time with me. Not a problem at all. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Hopefully soon we can get you on mine. And thanks for allowing me to share my story on your podcast. It's obvious that Randy's story is truly one of overcoming, and now he can truly be an inspiration to others that you don't have to let your circumstances dictate your path, and now he's able to continue sharing those type of stories of others just like him who've also been able to overcome when many people didn't give them any chance of achieving any type of success, and that's with his podcast, outside shot. Now that finishes episode 55. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 